Buenos dias. Hello to our listeners in the United States and to our audience around the world. Whether you be on the surface of the Earth or below, in low Earth orbit, deep space, or a parallel universe, greetings from the tiny Latin American nation of Panama, from the rugged Tabasara Mountains of the Continental Divide. We've missed a week on the Spectral Skull Session. I have been conducting interviews, reaching out to alternative spiritual communities here in Central and South America, and doing literature reviews for future episodes. All this and more while dealing with power outages and windstorms. We are having a windstorm at the moment, so pardon the audio. But as the Russians say whenever they invade Crimea, the show must continue its onward going, of course. Today we will be doing a news roundup. There is so much happening in global news of the weird that we need an entire episode covering it. The focus for today's roundup will be the Pacific Rim region. I maintain in this episode that a new locus of mystery has coalesced, spanning from the western edge of the United States to the eastern shores of China. This episode raises the question, what is going on in the Pacific Ocean? You are listening to the Spectral Skull Session, tales from the twilight world of myth, mystery, and imagination. The idea behind this podcast is that we explore claims about the occult, supernatural, and paranormal from an analytical standpoint. We're open to the existence of a world beyond the five senses, and we dismiss that dogmatic skepticism that insists that any story about the unexplained has to reduce to hallucinations or swamp gas. But we're not committed to any particular theory or philosophy about what the paranormal is, and we realize that, whatever is out there, the answer is likely to be more complicated than any existing model or theory. What we bring to the table is small s skepticism, a skepticism that we throw as much on the mainstream accounts as we do on the supernatural story. Okay, let's get started. Do you ever have this problem? You're getting ready for a long walk in the woods and you want to roll a spliff of smokable herb. You've got your herb in the bathroom, you're rooting around in your toiletries kit for medical scissors so you can chop it up nice and fine, but then you have to go get a plate from the kitchen. When you're all done, it's a mess. You've got herbs all over the bathroom, your hands smell like herb, you've got to wash all this stuff and put it back. It takes forever to get out the door, you're not vibing, you got to light that spliff up before you can feel at peace. Ugh. Luckily, Happy Trees has the solution. A premium grade stash box from Happy Trees. That's happytreesupplies.com. Happy Trees sells a convenient lockable stash box. It comes with a four-piece titanium grinder that will give you the smooth grind you've been looking for. The 50 diamond cut teeth grinds your herb to the perfect size for cones and rolls. The neodymium magnets keep the lid on tight while you grind. There's also a stash jar, which will protect your herb from damaging UV rays and keep moisture in, so your stash stays fresh. The airtight seal helps keep smells inside, so you can save them for yourself. There's also a metal rolling tray, so you can save every precious bud. And everything fits snugly into the box. Plus it has a key, so your nosy roommate or your little brother isn't poking around in your stash. They come in three varieties. There's the Metatron's Cube-themed box that has Metatron's Cube etched on the box in every accessory. Metatron's Cube is a sacred image associated with the angel 
who translates the directives of God into a form comprehensible to humans. This is according to the Kabbalah. There's also a Desert Visions themed box. It has colorful desert scenes painted onto the accessories. And for those of you who prefer plain, there's a box made of bamboo that is just adorable. I have my own Happy Tree stash box. Yes, I use it to hold my stash. I absolutely love it. These boxes range from $38.90 to $28.90 on the website, happytreesupplies.com. But now Happy Trees is offering a special deal to anyone who listens to this show. Use the coupon code SPECTRAL20 for a 20% discount. What are you waiting for? Skip the mess, get organized, and preserve your stash from degrading ultraviolet light and snoopy little thieves who try to make off with your herb. Check out happytreesupplies.com. That's happytreesupplies.com. Let's begin with a quick nature story from Antarctica. Scientists drilling in that region discovered a slurry of plant and animal life, one half mile underneath the ice. This occurred on the Filchner Rhone ice shelf of Antarctica, which is a five hour flight from the nearest science station. A science team was attempting to extract a sample of the sediment from the mud, which is located underneath the ice in Antarctica. And this required a borehole that went more than a half mile deep. After the scientists had created the hole, they lowered a camera into it. In fact, it was a GoPro. That camera came back unexpectedly with pictures from a layer of liquid between the muddy floor and the ice. In that layer of liquid, the scientists found evidence of bacterial mats, also an alien-like sponge animal, as well as other stalked animals that had attached themselves to a nearby stone. They also found additional stouter cylindrical sponge creatures hugging the surface. I believe but that means the where the ice meets the water. This unexpected finding has been published in the academic journal Frontiers in Marine Science. One of the things that made this finding so baffling is that there's no nearby source of energy. Any ecosystem needs an energy input, either sunlight or geothermal. Various different kinds of creatures can prey on organisms that themselves work directly with heat or geothermal energy. Uh, we humans are an example. We eat plants, animals, and don't forget fungi. We steal their hard-earned energy nutrients and complex molecules that compose their bodies become part of us so that we can survive at their expense. Now, of the organisms we brutally assimilate into our bodies, all of them are either themselves doing the same thing to other organisms to survive, or they're making use of some kind of energy gradient. They use an energy gradient to power the direct extraction of nutrients. Plants, as you know, make use of sunlight to power the production of sugars, Bacteria that live along undersea vents oxidize the hydrogen sulfide that comes out of the vent to produce energy. As I understand it, hydrogen sulfide is an unstable molecule that's produced by volcanic processes. So those bacteria are basically freeloading off of volcanoes while plants freeload off of the sun. And the rest of us freeload ultimately off of plants, even fungi, who are otherwise upstanding organisms. Now, many of you will know there is life deep in Earth's oceans. Most of that is not powered by geothermal vents. So how does that life hang on? The answer is horrifying. It's called marine snow. 
There's so much biological life in our oceans, so much plankton and fish and crabs and shrimp, just about everything you can imagine. And these organisms are constantly shedding and fighting each other. They get little pieces bitten off by other creatures. They die and they decompose. And this whole process of life and death, combined with the churning of the ocean currents, creates a white powdery substance that falls into the deep abyssal layers of the ocean. There are entire ecosystems down there in what's called the abyssal zone, where there is no light whatsoever. It is pitch black. The abyssal zone starts about 4,000 meters down. It's 2.4 miles. And this life is feeding entirely off of what they're calling marine snow, which is basically just dead organic matter that endlessly snows from the higher regions of the ocean to the lower regions. Uh, it's like ocean dandruff. So imagine a community of organisms that depend entirely on dandruff. They're doing fine down there in the abyssal zone. They have all kinds of stationary creatures and weird fish that eat the stationary creatures and even weirder fishes that eat those fish. So they have a whole world down there running off of dandruff. As desperate as the situation sounds in the abyssal plain, this mini ecosystem that the scientists found under Antarctica was frozen underneath a half a mile of ice at the South Pole. It seems like it was even more isolated from potential energy sources. So what is the energy gradient or the nutrient influx keeping this community going? The scientists figure the marine animals they found underneath that ice must be feeding off of sites at least 300 miles away where the water breaks through. They've inferred that there must be channels of water underneath Antarctica, and they're postulating something like the marine snow phenomenon that fuels the abyssal plain of the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans is taking place there in Antarctica, but it's happening horizontally instead of vertically. So there's a horizontal channel of water that is churning all this organic matter into a snow, this digestible form, and that these creatures that they discovered by drilling are feeding off of that. Well, maybe, but with scientists, remember, they do a lot of work and they have my respect, but at least half the time they're totally making things up. When scientists are actively making things up, they will call it a theory or a hypothesis, and a good theory is just one that you can get someone else to pay you to investigate. That's how science works. So before you go calling the inhabitants of the abyssal zone parasites, maybe take a look in the mirror, scientists. We're certainly all parasites off of the local energy gradient, even fungi. So who knows what could be underneath the ice in Antarctica? Let's hope that these egg-headed scientists don't pull up the frozen body of a man who looks exactly like Kurt Russell's character from The Thing, that classic horror film by John Carpenter. Moving on now to physics-related news, many people will be familiar with the warp drive, although the name can be traced to the science fiction of the 20th century, including but not limited to the original series Star Trek. The possibility of faster-than-light travel was endorsed by Mexican mathematician and physicist Miguel Alcubierre in a 1994 peer-reviewed research publication. Alcubierre outlined his plan for the propulsion of a spacecraft through the use of exotic matter. Exotic matter is any kind of material that theoretically can exist, 
or should exist, given the models preferred by contemporary physicists, but which hasn't yet been observed or has been observed only in small amounts. In this case, the exotic matter required for Alcubierre's drive is a kind of matter that gives off a negative gravitational field. Instead of attracting other objects, it would repel them. Using this negative gravitational field, the Alcubierre drive would compress space in front of the craft, move the space around to the back of the ship, and then decompress that space behind it. In this way, the ship could literally warp space, and thereby relocate itself at very high speeds. Unfortunately, in addition to requiring a form of exotic matter that has never been proven to exist, the Alcubierre drive also required a quantity of exotic matter with a greater mass than the planet Jupiter. And this is thought to have ensured that the Alcubierre drive would be practically, if not theoretically, impossible. A more efficient warp drive requiring less exotic mass was described in the book Faster Than Light, colon, Warp Drive and Quantum Vacuum Power, parentheses, Lost Science, by H. David Froney, published in 2019 and available on Amazon right now. But in April 2020, two engineers from Chicago made the real breakthrough. Jessica Galanis and Eaton Ham Suchard published a patent application for a new warp drive that they say is both physically possible and does not require any exotic matter. Instead, it runs entirely on the use of electromagnetic fields to warp space. Dr. Jason Cassabri, a professor at the Propulsion Research Center at the University of Alabama, Huntsville, expressed skepticism. A member of his lab made a statement to the press saying, based on some of the papers I've looked at, there is indeed a relation between highly concentrated magnetic energy, like in a huge solenoid, and a positive gravity well. But the amount of energy required to be detectable is quite large. And although doable, that experiment has not been run yet. And so the warp drive remains only a theoretical possibility at this time, but we can all hold out hope that the development of new technologies, which may permit interstellar travel, will be right around the corner. This reminds me of a topic I heard about back in 2016, a thruster-free propulsion device that uses microwaves. This is the M-Drive, designed by Roger Scheuer in 1998. The basic principle is that if you bounce microwaves around inside a copper tube, they exert more force in one direction than the other, creating a net thrust without the need for any propellant. I've tried to test this myself, but I can't get my microwave to turn on with the door open. Anyway, the EM drive, or M drive as it's called, is supposed to be promising as an alternative to thrusters on satellites. NASA supposedly looked into building an M drive, but the results were controversial. DARPA has supposedly also looked into it. Again, there's a lot of uh, disagreement in the scientific community and on the internet about whether these experiments were ever done or whether they were official and whether they worked. Meanwhile, China's Science and Technology Daily has reported that China's space program is already testing an M-Drive in orbit. According to one source whose full identity could not be confirmed, the Chinese have been funding research in the area since 2011. They have proven the M-Drive works at microscale and are making plans to scale it up. Another source reports that the Chinese government is making plans to install an M-Drive on their Chinese space station. 
I believe that would be the Tiangong II. It's very scary to think of the Chinese actively implementing a new technology while the Americans can't even decide if the technology exists. Let's hope this isn't the case. And of course, now might be a good time for our audience to go to your kitchen and check out your microwave. Where was it manufactured? Was it China? How do you feel about the possibility that one day your microwave could become animated, flying around the kitchen? Make for an excellent TikTok video, that's for sure. In all seriousness, two caveats need to be made. First of all, the M drive, although it was advertised by the creator as having the potential to allow spacecraft to lift off without rockets, in reality, everyone agrees that if the M drive is real, its ability to convert energy into propulsion is actually not competitive with rockets. So the only attraction of the M drive is to move things around in space that are already moving and just need a little bit of nudging, like satellites, which need to maneuver. They're already in orbit around the Earth. They're moving quite fast, but with a little bit of a nudge, they can get into a totally new trajectory. The other caveat, which I hope almost goes without saying, is that concerns about Chinese technology voiced in this episode and other episodes are directed towards the People's Republic of China, which can be distinguished from both the Republic of China, which operates off of the island of Taiwan, and also from people who are ethnically Chinese. There are plenty of people around the world who are ethnically Chinese and have nothing to do with the People's Republic of China. I'm not trying to direct any animosity against any ethnic or cultural group people on this planet. Moving on to another story about advanced technologies being deployed in the Pacific. The War Zone reports that in 2019, multiple U.S. destroyers were swarmed by mysterious lights, which were declared to be drones, but never positively identified. The so-called drones began showing up in July 2019. Appearing during the evening, as many as six at a time, they would swarm around the naval ships. The sailors noted the drones were able to operate for prolonged periods, long in excess of what any existing commercial drone can do. They also noted the drones operated in low visibility conditions, were highly coordinated in their flight patterns, and operated brazenly inside a sensitive U.S. military training range. The ensuing investigation included elements of the Navy, the Coast Guard, and the Federal Bureau of Investigation. The war zone was able to gather this information using the Freedom of Information Act. They learned that this event involved five different destroyers. Shortly after the USS Kidd began encountering drones on July 14th, that ship's commanding officer ordered the implementation of MCOM protocols. That means emission control. Emission control protocols are protocols designed to make a ship less of a target by reducing the total amount of electronic noise that ship produces. And I would imagine that this would also involve telling all the sailors on board the ship to stop using their cell phones. So it would be an enforced period of cellular as well as radio silence. The encounters were disturbing and noteworthy enough. They led to the mobilization of documentarians on board the ship, known as Snoopy Teams. This stands for the ship nautical or otherwise photographic interpretation and exploitation team. The Snoopy teams brandish commercial-grade cameras, and they run around 
the ship photographing unusual or important events. They sound like the naval version of the paparazzi. You can imagine these naval guys and gals shouting things like, Hey drone, look over here. And, Hey drone, I heard your latest movie was a flop. Are you going to have to sell your condo in Clearwater? The ship's logs contain entries referring to the sighting of a red flashing light and then later a white light hovering over the ship's flight deck. The log reflects that the drone managed to match the destroyer's speed while the craft was moving at 16 knots. The war zone comments that this is a technically impressive feat. So the ship is not only maneuvering, but presumably going up and down with the waves. And this uh, light, which was called a drone by those who observed it, is floating, maintaining its distance from the ship and maintaining parallel course with the ship so that it appears to be hovering over the deck. Another log entry for the USS Kidd simply states multiple UAVs around ship, while the logs from another destroyer describe an event from 7.30 that night that lasted until almost 8 p.m. In that event, multiple drones were sighted, dropping in elevation, moving forward and backward, left and right. It sounds like these were multiple concurrent reports of the drones dropping. It sounds like moving in a circle. That same ship also recorded a radio call from a passing cruise liner, the Carnival Imagination. The Carnival notified the Navy they were also seeing five to six drones maneuvering nearby, and they said those drones were not associated with the cruise ship. Sorry to hear that. I know when I think about taking a cruise, I ask myself, will I be able to send drones out to harass the local naval destroyers? And when the answer is no, I sign up to do something else entirely. The war zone notes that the ensuing investigation went up the chain of command to the highest ranks of the U.S. Navy. This indicates that the encounter was not a simple case of an experimental aircraft involved in a top-secret test being accidentally deployed too close to an operating naval vessel. The war zone ends their own story by noting that no one ever described any details connecting to the mysterious lights, putting the very label drone in question. Were these even drones at all? Or would it have been better to merely label them UFO? I also want to note that the Warzone has several stories right now on their website about mystery drone swarms. Apparently, a drone swarm descended on the Palo Verde nuclear power plant in September 2019. This power plant is less than 50 miles away from Phoenix, Arizona. The FAA, in their report on this event, literally described it as a dronapalooza. I believe that Dronapalooza is a technical term describing a festival of flying objects that is widely acclaimed, but which no one ever actually attends. Another event happening in 2019, this one at Anderson Air Force Base in Guam, involved repeated drone intrusions that appeared to be targeting the THAAD missile battery. This is the high amplitude, I'm sorry, high altitude area defense battery. It exists to shoot down ballistic missiles that may be targeted at the island or elsewhere. Only in the Guam incident were the drones described as looking like drones. There they were described as quadricopter-like and having spotlights. So maybe the drones were the paparazzi in this case. These reports suggest to me that something is happening in the Pacific. Related to these stories, on March 27th, 2021, 
the Japanese military revealed their plans to upgrade their troop presence on the island of Yonaguni. This news comes to us from Six Park News. The slogan on their website is, the only English news for Chinese people. But since they failed to ask my nationality, I was able to access this story regardless. A shout out and thank you to Six Park News. As this story notes, Yonaguni is just 11 miles away from the island of Taiwan, and the Japanese government has been raising concerns lately about a possible invasion of Taiwan by China, that is the People's Republic of China, because Japan's constitution limits military action by that country to self-defense. This means that in the event of a war between the People's Republic of China and Taiwan, the Japanese government would be forced to scramble about for some legal rationale that would permit them to come to the aid of their ally, Taiwan. It's thought that placing Japanese soldiers closer to the theater of conflict would improve the odds that the Japanese government will be able to justify getting involved in the event of a war between these two countries. The name Yonaguni may ring a bell for many of our listeners. Right off the shore of this island is the famous so-called underwater Japanese pyramid, an ancient ziggurat-like structure. It rises from a depth of 25 meters, that's 82 feet, and I believe it comes as high as um, just 10 meters below the sea level. The complex appears to be a man-made step pyramid. It's over 165 feet long, and 65 feet wide, that's 50 meters by 20 meters. The existence of this precious monument of completely unknown origin near the island of Yonaguni begs the question of whether the Japanese military is stepping up their presence because of China's threats against Taiwan, or whether the Japanese military may be moving to secure and then investigate the Yonaguni underwater pyramid. At the surface level, all these stories taken together, stories about research being done on breakthrough new propulsion technologies, drone swarms in the Pacific, and now the Japanese military moving additional troops to an island near Taiwan. All these stories suggest to me that we are witnessing Cold War style action in the Pacific. The most obvious possibility is that the US or China or both are deploying some kind of Wunderwaffen drone technology. Wunderwaffen is, of course, German for superweapon. I use it to refer to the advanced technology sought by the Germans in both World War I and II. The Germans were hoping that they could acquire a technological edge that would allow them to win those wars. But there's another possible twist. What if what's happening is that all the increased military activity in the Pacific has stirred up an alien base, or even an underwater civilization. There could be advanced beings that share this planet with us, preferring to stay in the deep ocean. Perhaps these beings are witnessing the increased military activity in the Pacific, and they've started sending up drones to buzz the human militaries and say, please go away, we don't want your naval paparazzi in our neighborhood. So I think we're looking at two possible layers here. Of course, there is the overt Cold War between the United States and China, which is increasingly centered around Chinese aggression towards the island of Taiwan. But then there may also be a standoff between humans and an underwater civilization of some kind. The idea of 
multiple interacting standoffs creates the possibility of shifting alliances, an advanced intrigue that would put the 20th century's Cold War to shame. Or there could even be a breakaway human civilization located in the Pacific. It's possible that all the talented people out there who are sick and tired of the negative energy on Twitter have gone John Galt and built their own underwater city or cities. Speaking of Twitter, Elon Musk recently made waves by tweeting about UFOs. On March 22nd, Musk tweeted, strongest argument against aliens. Below his tweet were two graphs. One graph was labeled camera resolution, and it showed a line increasing upwards exponentially. The second graph was labeled UFO picture resolution, and it was a horizontal line. The argument here was straightforward. If UFOs are alien spaceships, then we should have better photographic evidence of them today than we did in the late 1940s, when people first started photographing them. The best response to Musk's tweet came from Russian-American scientist and podcaster Lex Friedman, who simply replied to Musk, that is exactly what an alien would say. The worst reply came from a Twitter account, r slash UFO believers, which purports to represent the UFO community on Reddit. Mind you, this is a Twitter account representing a Reddit community, or purporting to anyhow. Anyway, this account responded to Musk by repeatedly linking to stories of first-person reports about UFOs, at one point adding something to the effect of, how can all these people be lying? I became frustrated watching this. I even asked UFO believers to please stop replying to Musk, unless they were going to go on to directly redress his argument. The account responded to me with a DM that I cannot repeat on the air, and then blocked me. I'm sorry if I've hurt the feelings of the leadership of the Reddit UFO community on Twitter. I think I'm on your side because I'm sympathetic to the extraterrestrial hypothesis. But before I'm on anyone's side, I'm on the side of the truth. And one of the ways to get to the truth is to engage in the process of what Plato called dialectic. This is argument that aims to put egos aside and find the truth. When someone makes a good point, we should acknowledge the point, represent it as charitably as possible, and then respond with our own arguments and evidence. We should also endeavor to always address the strongest possible interpretation of the argument we've heard. So as I see it, Musk has made an argument that can be reconstructed like this. If UFOs were concrete physical craft, similar to our own air and spacecraft, but more advanced, we would expect them to be detailed. They might have tiny little exhaust pipes or little hatches, little decals. And as our cameras get better, we would expect our photographs of these spacecraft to show more and more of their details with time. It is troubling to the extraterrestrial hypothesis that this has not happened. Now, yes, there are possible replies to this argument. Some of them actually were coming from Twitter. One Twitter account maintained that modern cameras have an infrared filter and UFO broadcasts in the infrared, so they're being filtered out. Oh wait, so that wasn't one of the good ones. I actually don't get that argument because I've used camera phones and they're, I've used phones on my camera to detect infrared. So I have a Galaxy, Samsung Galaxy J7, and I've found that it can detect infrared light. Infrared light shows up as a ghostly white when I look at it through my camera. 
So um, I think this person might have meant that uh, maybe UFOs are producing infrared light and thus they're blurring out their camera image. They're overloading the camera with an excess of infrared light. And that's causing UFOs to appear blurry, just glowing and blurry when they're photographed. Other tweeters maintained that UFOs propel themselves with powerful electromagnetic fields, and this distorts their appearance. Well, the scientists are saying that it's possible to build a warp drive using powerful electromagnetic fields. It seems possible that, yeah, maybe EM fields are interfering with the actual space around the spaceships and that it's causing distortion. It's also possible that these powerful electromagnetic fields are directly interfering with our cameras, making it hard to photograph UFOs. Both of these are fruitful responses to Musk's argument, in my view, because they're testable. It could be that UFOs are producing infrared light, and we can test that because we can say, let's look at them with infrared cameras. Let's see if we can capture them on infrared-only cameras or cameras that do have an infrared filter. If UFOs are giving off magnetic fields, we should be able to detect that eventually, you know, using compasses or whatever, metal detectors. Now, it might also be maintained that UFOs are extra-dimensional craft. Perhaps they're only partially in our universe at any given time, and hence won't ever fully show up in photographs. Or they could be spiritual phenomena that either won't ever show up on cameras at all, or will only in the way that spirits show up on spirit photographs. But note, these last two possibilities put the extraterrestrial hypothesis into doubt. Strictly speaking, the extraterrestrial hypothesis is the idea that some UFOs are merely advanced versions of the craft we already know. Craft made by flesh and blood beings, made of metal, flying through the air, just originating from a different planet. Seen from this angle, Musk's argument challenges the extraterrestrial hypothesis without endangering the reality of UFOs. Of course, there is an even more direct response to Musk's argument, which is to challenge the premise that camera resolution of UFO images has not improved, because it seems to me that the U.S. military is indicating that they now have some decent photographs of these craft. Indeed, former director of national intelligence John Ratcliffe recently went on cable news to say that the government has excellent sensor information on UFOs. And he said, quote, there are instances where we don't have good explanations for some of the things we've seen. And when that information becomes declassified, I'll be able to talk a little bit more about that. Radcliffe may be referring to the June 1st deadline for an intelligence report on UFOs. The December 27th stimulus bill passed by Congress and signed into law by then President Trump contains a section ordering the intelligence community to prepare a report on UFOs and their possible threat to national security. This report is to be presented to the Senate Intelligence Committee. Senator Marco Rubio, who is the chair of that committee, also addressed UFOs. He's appeared recently on Fox News saying, well, we have things flying over military installations, over military exercises and other places, and we don't know what it is. It isn't ours. It isn't anything that's registered with the FAA, and in many cases exhibits attributes of things we've never seen, the kind of technology we've never seen before. At least that's what it seems like. I think you have to know what it is, or we have to try to know what it is. 
That's my view of it, without any preconceived notions. Maybe there's a logical explanation. Maybe it's, a, you know, something that can be explained away. Maybe it's a foreign adversary who made a technological leap, as you've heard the former DNI said. Whatever it is, we need to know the answer to it. The problem with this issue is every time you raise it, people get all nervous. Oh, does this mean UFOs and aliens and extraterrestrials? We don't have to go so far. It's very simple. There are things flying over national security installations. We don't know who they are. I don't know what it is. It isn't ours. We need to find out. So perhaps we can concede to Elon Musk that yes, UFOs aren't looking better on commercial grade cameras that are readily available to the public, but perhaps they're looking quite good to the US military. And this remains the scariest possibility in my mind, that these UFOs that are buzzing American installations around the Pacific might be the product of an adversarial technological breakthrough. A Sino-Wunderwaffen would be a nightmare scenario of the utmost gravity. Let me briefly describe why. The United States has the greatest navy in the world, and the United States plans around being able to use that navy to project force in the event of a war. The U.S. has these enormous carriers, carrier groups. They have flotillas of ships that can shoot down planes from the sky, fire missiles that land on shore, sink enemy ships, and launch bombing raids using carrier-based aircraft. These are platforms for projecting force. They ensure that the United States can win a war with, say, the People's Republic of China. But there is a growing fear that in the event of a war, the Chinese might sink the American Navy by using their huge masses of ballistic missiles or some of the other missiles they've been developing. Ballistic missiles are missiles that use a parabolic trajectory. They go way up in the air and they fall down out of the sky. They come straight down on their target. They're not necessarily atomic weapons, though they can be. These Scud missiles used by Iraq in their failed attempt to prevent the U.S. invasion in 1993 as the invasion of Kuwait to push out the Iraqis. And then again in 2001, these Scud missiles were ballistic missiles, and they did not carry um, any unconventional payloads. These missiles were notoriously inaccurate and ineffective, but the Chinese have much more advanced cruise missiles today than the Iraqis did in 2001. And they're believed to have mastered the art of getting your ballistic missiles to land more or less where you want them to land. They have enormous quantities of these missiles, all pointing out from the mainland into the Pacific Ocean. Now, despite this, the advantage has traditionally been anticipated to the U.S. Navy because the Pacific Ocean is enormous. Even a carrier can move 30 knots, so just by zigzagging randomly, U.S. ships can become almost impossible to target using ballistic missiles or even the more advanced hypersonic missiles that are right around the corner. There's always a big gap in time between finding a ship in the ocean, asking for a missile to be fired, firing the missile, and then getting the missile to the target. The best way to target a moving object, like a ship, is to keep an eyeball on it. Not literally an eyeball, but some kind of targeting device that updates targeting information in real time so that your missile can be launched as accurately as possible and even guided to the target during flight. So my terrifying thought is, what if these weird, super-performing UFOs that have been buzzing U.S. ships and airplanes and facilities in the Pacific are a Chinese Wunderwaffen. 
And what if their function is to guide in missile attacks on US ships and installations? This is no laughing matter. This is really scary because it does appear that the Chinese Communist Party is gearing for an invasion of the free and independent nation of Taiwan, which is a close US ally and which the US is treaty bound to defend. In recent months, the Chinese have been increasingly infiltrating Taiwanese airspace, which is illegal, but they do it anyway. They have also been massing ships in the South China Sea, sparking a confrontation with the Philippines. They have constructed an enormous military-grade helopad just across the strait from the island of Taiwan. This helopad would be perfect for loading soldiers into helicopters and then helicoptering them the 100 miles to Taiwan. So my sense is that the world is headed for war in the Pacific. On one side will be the People's Republic of China, on the other will be Taiwan, the United States, and Japan. And if you throw in the possibility of a Sino-Wunderwaffen, that war becomes terrifying. Of course, terrifying as it is, it's not exactly occult and paranormal news, so why cover it? After all, probably the biggest mainstream news of this week is Russia's invasion of Ukraine. As an aside, I'm seeing all kinds of photos on Twitter of Russian military convoys rushing through the Crimea, through Belarus, headed for the Ukrainian border. It looks like Russia is about to launch an invasion of that country, Ukraine. Uh, but I'm completely skipping over that story to discuss issues related to a conflict that may be months or even years away. Well, I think that we need to be aware of the larger context in order to assess the strange news coming out of the Pacific Ocean. Clearly, this region is fast becoming a locus for intrigue and espionage, if not also magic and mystery. I hope that some of my wilder hypotheses will turn out to be grounded in reality. I would be delighted if it turns out there is an underwater civilization or alien base in the Pacific. Those interested in thinking about this may wish to read John Wyndham's classic novella, The Kraken Wakes, in which aliens that can only survive deep underwater invade Earth by landing in the Pacific. Also, contemporary science fiction author Peter Watts has a 1999 book, Starfish, which describes genetically modified humans scraping by in an undersea base. It's a kind of late 20th century homage to the island of Dr. Moreau. These are the fun, weird possibilities that we can use fiction as a crutch to think through. They're worth entertaining because they're very interesting, and they might be true. At the same time, we should be informed about the more prosaic possibility. There are a lot of professional warriors in the US and in China who are highly motivated to keep the rest of us in the dark about what they are doing in the Pacific. These characters are up to all sorts of trouble. Meanwhile, their cloak and dagger counterparts are actively working to keep us all in the dark about the nature of their plans. I will continue to cover the increasingly enigmatic Pacific theater as this situation progresses, I will do my best to get you the straight story while avoiding compromising U.S. national security. It is often said that the phrase, may you live in interesting times, is an ancient Chinese curse. And yet, for good or for ill, we do. I am your host, Dane. Until next time, stay strange and stay sane.